Well, that's exactly what we're learning from the book of Genesis, is what God is doing in this world. Uh, He is still doing some of the things that he was doing in the book of Genesis, and we've seen so far that he is a God who creates, he's a God who delegates, he's a God who judges. And now we're going to see this morning, he is a God who saves. So if you would take your Bibles, and let's turn, turn to one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. And I'll tell you, there's a secret about familiar stories, is you don't know everything about that story you think you know. I know every time I study one of these familiar stories, I realize how unfamiliar I am with some of the details of it. And there's some tremendous truths in this story that you've learned from childhood if you grew up in church. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you've, you've heard of Noah and Noah's Ark. And you probably know a little bit about the story. And unfortunately, most of what you've seen in life uh, has probably been not a very good depiction of it. It's a horrifying thought that God drowns the world. The world is covered in, in water with one little speck, one little boat with eight people on it and representatives from all the animals. That's all that was saved. It's a, it's a very tragic scene, and yet we make cute little boats with cute little Muppets hanging out, you know, uh, that we give our kids when they're little, and Noah's Ark, and all of those kind of things. But, but I want us to, to really look at this story and see what God is teaching us about it. Follow along as I read out of Genesis 7, then a verse out of Genesis 8, and then a few out of Genesis 9. And this gives sort of the beginning, or really the middle, and the end of the story. And I'm going to have to assume that you know some of this, that God is judging planet Earth because of all the sin that he saw, and every thought and intention of the heart of those who populated planet Earth was evil continually. This incredible creation and this incredible God was being ignored. It was a wreck. And so God brings a judgment. But before he did that, as we saw last week and the week before, God wanted to restore. And he had this wonderful period of 120 years of grace. It wasn't that he didn't offer grace, but he had to bring judgment upon the sin. And we enter into this judgment. He told Noah and he told the people, and they didn't believe him, it's going to rain. And it's going to flood. And they're like, we've never seen a flood. I don't know if they had ever seen a flood. But here we bring this story to the forefront. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So get the picture. It is planet earth somewhat like it began not long before this. A chaotic body of water. It's kind of back towards the beginning. There's one little boat floating on this mass of water. And this is rather tragic. Listen to what it says. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And how much of mankind? All mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing 
that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now turn the page to chapter 8, verse 1. So we move from this unbelievably tragic scene that we've become so familiar with that we, we don't think about the mass of death that this was, the tragedy of it. But in the midst of this tragedy, here are some astounding words. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God, what? Remembered Noah. And all of the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And something is interesting, over this chaotic body of water again, we see this, the winds move and it separates the water just like it did in chapter 1 and all of a sudden we got some new dry ground. We got a do-over here. We're starting over. We got a new beginning. God has just judged planet earth, but we're seeing signs of hope. Now look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, flip over another page. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. So to all the human beings, he says this. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And not only am I making a covenant, a promise, a promise with you and your offspring, you human beings, I am making a covenant with with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the earth. Did you know God made a promise to the animals? You know God loves animals, say amen. God loves animals. Yeah, all you have to do is read scripture. I mean, he created the magnificent beauty of planet earth. It broke his heart, not just to, to wipe out humanity. It broke his heart to wipe out his glorious creation. And so he makes a promise to the animals to the livestock. And he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between you, me, and the what? And the earth. Let's pray together. Father, it is my prayer that we would see your glorious grace in the face of our tragic depravity. Thank you that when the universe was empty, billions and billions and trillions of miles of space and galaxies. We don't know that there was maybe just eight people in the universe. What is man that you're mindful of us, that you would remember us? God, you save. You're a saving God, thank you. We ask that you would just bless us by helping us see this more deeply today.
and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about the difficulty that the Old Testament is for a lot of folks. The Old Testament is kind of difficult reading, but I encourage you to read it. It is there for a reason. The Holy Spirit has put it there. A lot of people struggle with the Old Testament because it is filled with carnage. It is just filled with blood, gore, carnage, mass, genocide, death. It's horrifying. And we need to ask ourselves the question, why would God put a, a story? Why would he record this story? Well, there's several reasons. One is, one is certainly to warn us, to point to the judgment that comes upon sin and how seriously he takes sin. But a second is, in the midst of the judgment, he also offers grace. He also offers salvation. So there's a warning in this story, and there is also an invitation in this story. But we started off with such a good planet, and then we have watched... We have watched as mankind brought sin and destroyed planet Earth. And so God has kind of washed it clean and he's beginning to start again. But I was thinking about these stories. And, you know, I, uh, one of the stories you all never forget is one of the great carnage events of my life. And you continually bring it up to me over and over again. And is that last fall, my, I put my two twins, my teenagers, on a a bus that took them to the wrong high school. I forced them onto a bus and that took them to East Side instead of Buholtz. And y'all don't seem to forget my horrifying stories. I could tell you all the good things that I do, and you don't remember any of those. But I put before you this, and you're like, well, you, you just find that little bit of carnage interesting. Well... This year, um, I did a little bit what God did. God took planet Earth, he created it, said it is good, and then he handed the keys to Adam and Eve. So I handed the keys to my teenagers. So if the teenagers end up at the wrong high school, it is their fault, right? (laughs) They are now... Create now stick with me, created in my image, <laughs> given responsibility and rule. They've been given the car. What's interesting, however, is that the insurance company through which I have my policies seem to think that teenagers don't drive as well as the rest of us. Because as soon as I put them onto my policy, my rates almost doubled. Here's why. There is a written record going back thousands of years. <laughs> no, hundreds, I don't know, maybe a hundred years. I don't know how long. When did we start drinking? But anyway, there are millennia of information that teenagers, when given responsibility over a car, wreck it far more often than more experienced. Now, evidently, that's what the, the insurance company thinks. It's also been borne out in my life. Having, uh, these are my fourth and my fifth teenagers. We've had our share of automobile accidents. And we've had those, uh, I've had my share of those phone calls. Dad? I'm sorry. <laughs> I know for What? And I'm just, I'm thankful 
that they're all alive, right? They've lived like Noah through the wreck. But, but I noticed as I was driving my kids last year to school, I would sometimes wait for them at the school, and I would go and I would walk around the track as a time of exercise. And uh, uh, at some point during the year, they put a, a wrecked car in the middle of the track. Have you all seen this? They put a wrecked, just a completely mangled automobile in the middle of the track. And you know why it's there. Right before prom, about that time of the year, they bring all the kids out to see the wreck. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Is is it to celebrate the death of whoever drove that car? No. It is to look at them and say, you are taking responsibility now. You have been handed the keys to the car. Drive safely. Be careful. Be watchful. Don't wreck it. Don't wreck it. And so when we look at these stories like the flood, it just points out the carnage that sin has brought, and you and I have participated in that sin. And so we see the wreck that our world is often, and sometimes you and I look at our lives and we realize we've wrecked our lives and we've wrecked relationships sometimes. And you can make decisions that wreck your finances and that wreck all sorts of things. But the story is not just to, not just to gloat in the wreck and the sorrow in the wreck, but also to see the hope. Because this story is a great story of hope. Because in the middle of this wreck, God saves. He saves. But it's interesting the delay that God gives. And I I may not even get through this sermon. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. But this just amazes me is that uh, my son Caleb wrecked his car one time, and I mean he wrecked it. This was no fender bender. Uh, this was a big wreck. They had to tow the car in there, and, and uh, uh, thank goodness it was totaled. I mean, that's, you, that's a word you want to hear sometimes. You want to hear the insurance say, it's a total, it's total. Nothing can be done. It's undrivable. But we've also had wrecks where it wasn't totaled, and there was this period of time where we drove a wreck. Anybody driving a wreck right now? <laughs> You've been driving a wreck. I've driven wrecks before, before I could get them fixed because I couldn't afford it, couldn't pay for it, or didn't have the insurance uh, uh, to cover comprehensive or something like that. And I've driven wrecks and things would scrape, the wheels would scrape the fenders. I had some that would just continually pull left. Right now, you and I, we still have the keys to this car, but we're driving a wreck. This earth pulls left. It pulls towards sin. We still have the curse and the brokenness and all of the challenges of the wreck that sin brings. And we're still not very good drivers. Say amen if you're sticking with this strange analogy, are you? All right, so we're walking into this. I just want you to see it from that perspective. And I want us to see God save. 
in this. And so before we take the Lord's Supper, I want us to see what God is saving us from, what God is saving us for, and who God is saving us through. What is God saving us from? Let's look at the wreck just for a moment. Look back at Genesis chapter sin. Chapter sin. Genesis chapter 6. Lots of sin here. Verse 1. When man began to multiply, this is before the flood, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after them when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now this is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And there are several interpretations. What are the sons of men? Some say they were just, that was a title for the rulers that were on earth. And they started just taking wives from everywhere and practicing polygamy. Some said that the sons of men were the sons of, uh, uh, of, of, of Cain and some of those folks that weren't followers of God. And the sons of God were those out of the lineage of Seth. And so you had sort of the believing crew intermarrying with the unbelieving crew. And that created, uh, but none of that seems to work in my opinion, in the context, because sons of God routinely refers to spiritual beings other than God that he has created. And you look through Scripture and you see, just like the Apostle Paul says, we don't wrestle flesh and blood, we wrestle powers and principalities. Well, these powers and principalities, however they did it, possessing human beings, taking some sort of human form, decided, now watch this, spiritual beings decided they wanted to become like men. Go back to chapter 1, 2, and 3. After, after Men, Adam and Eve, decided they wanted to be a little bit like spiritual beings. And so we have this devastation that Adam and Eve, trying to be like God. Remember Satan said, if you, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to know these things. They were looking to try to be more than they were, and they crossed this boundary, and it brought death. Now we've got some spiritual beings, the demonic and fallen angels and all these kind of things that decide they kind of like what they see on earth, so they're crossing this boundary. So we've got this huge wreck. It has wrecked the natural world. It has wrecked the spiritual world, and it has wrecked their personal world. So what is God saving us from? He's saving us from ourselves. Ourselves. He is saving us from our enemy. He's saving us from our enemy. We still have a spiritual enemy. There is great corruption in the spiritual world. He's saving us from ourselves because there is such deep corruption in our personal world. And I, I really wouldn't sit here this morning and go, well, I w- I'd be one, I'd be Noah. I'd be the one guy on planet Earth that he'd choose. It's better for us to look at the wreck and say, hey, my sin is wrecking my life. It has wrecked my life. It has wrecked my personal world. I, even, I don't know, do you struggle sometimes even having a good quiet time? Do you ever struggle praying? Do you ever struggle reading your Bible like you should? Do you ever struggle loving your neighbor and your, your family like you should? Do you ever struggle with stray thoughts and bad thoughts? Do you ever struggle with bad... Do I need to stop? Okay, we're struggling crew. We, it has wrecked our personal world. 
And he's saving us from ourselves, that corruption in the personal world. And so God is trying to save the people from this corrupted spiritual world, our enemy, and it's, it's still there. And, and then he's trying to save us from the corruption in the natural world. Our environment doesn't exactly like us. The bacteria at this moment are killing you. And if you walk out into the right place, the right time, there are animals that will kill you. Our natural world needs saving. And so God, God decides, Noah, build an ark. I'm going to rescue and I'm going to clean the world And I'm going to try to begin to bring about salvation to the personal world, your natural world, and even to the spiritual world. We find in other places that some of these rogue spirits were put in prison. But we have this huge wreck. Remember what the the picture of the wreck does for us. It warns us, but it also gives us hope. Look at Genesis 8. Let's look at Genesis 8. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Went out of what? Well, I've jumped ahead in the story. What did he go out of? The ark. So this is at the end of the story. Here comes Noah out of the ark. He's been in there a long time. And he, is, he just gets some, he's stretching, maybe kissing the ground. I don't know, but he's just excited to be out of the ark. His family's out of the ark. Here comes, you know, the animals. They're all excited to be out of the ark. And here they come. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then Noah did something very strange. He said, before y'all get too homey and too happy animals, I need a few volunteers out of every family. Do I have any volunteers? They're like, "What, what what are we volunteering for? I need to burn you as an offering. Wait, wait, wait a second. You just built an ark for 120 years and saved us. And you're going to burn a bunch of us? Remember the carnage I was talking about? What's it point to, church? It points to the severity and wreckage of sin. And so he gets this collection of animals. Let's watch this. He builds an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal. There were, remember those? And some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the altar. And here you see these families looking around, and there they go. Why did he need to offer sacrifices? Guess what got off of that boat with Noah? Think about what was in the boat. Were there animals in the boat? Were there people in the boat? Was there food in the boat? Was there all sorts of icky stuff in the boat? There was also sin in the boat. And the sin got off the boat. And not long after Noah 
has his worship service and he's blessed by God and God says, go out now, it's a fresh start. You're going you're gonna to be fruitful and multiply and all these animals are going to be fruitful and multiply. As soon as he gets started, we've got this ridiculous, ridiculous picture. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. We've got this ridiculous moment, but it shouldn't surprise us. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We find that sin came in the boat with Noah. So we still need saving. We still have challenges. What we have getting off the boat is eight drunk drivers. And as soon as they start driving the earth again, pretty soon we find them building a tower of Babel. We see God having to separate them. We see God uh, putting all the nations out into their different areas, dividing them so that they don't create this massive cesspool of sin. Sin was on the boat. That's what God is saving us from. What is he saving us for? Very quickly. Romans 8. Can I just show you this? We get some hint from the fact that God saved eight human beings and representatives from every kind of animal, insect, bird, whatever. You name it. Dinosaurs. I believe there were dinosaurs on the earth. And he got them all. And he saved a bunch Why did he save them? Because he is pointing to something in the future that he's got planned. And I'm telling you, what he's got planned is incredible. We're still driving this this broken, it just continually scrapes and, and doesn't start right and pulls left everywhere you go and it it's it's broken. We're still driving that and we're still drunk with sin drivers, but God is saving us for something better. Look at Romans eight nineteen. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this is you and me now, this time, the sons of God. We are sons of God now through Christ. For the creation was subjected to futility, not because of their sin, but because of our sin, Right? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in, what's the next word? Hope. What are we hoping for? What's he saving us for? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's going to be a day when Jesus returns and he, and, and he is going to give birth to, to something brand new. And I wish I had time to read through all of this. Revelation 20 says that he is going to take the, uh, Satan and the demonic and the beast and the false prophet. He's going to take all of those fallen spiritual beings. He's going to wrap them up. He's going to purify the spiritual realm, toss them into a lake of fire where they'll burn forever and ever. Amen? Looking forward to that. Having the spirit realm purified. All corruption comes out of heaven. 
It all comes out of the spiritual realm, but he's also going to bring cleansing to our own personal realm. Let me just read this to you. He says, I saw a new heaven. Verse, this is Revelation 21.1. You might just write this down and read it later. I saw a new heaven and a new what? Earth. For the first heaven, the first wreck had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be where? With them. Our personal world. We get to be with God face to face. We can't do that. He's saving us. Not just from ourselves. He's saving us for himself. I got to go on. How's he saving us? Who's he saving us through? We get a hint, don't we? One of the reasons that Noah, when he came out and he offered blood sacrifices, is that Genesis to Revelation says the same thing. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Let me back up just a minute and show you this. You've got to see this. Look at Revelation 22. And I'm sorry to my PowerPoint people. Just back up a little. Revelation 22, 1. You're seeing a new heaven and a new earth. A new natural world. You're seeing a new personal world where we'll be with God. How's this going to happen? Well, in the future, notice what this city is going to revolve around. Revelation 22.1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There's going to be rivers, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the what? Lamb. Lamb. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the what? Lamb. Will be in it. Who's the lamb? Revelation 5 6. An incredible, incredible verse. John's getting a picture of heaven. And I want you to see who the lamb is. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been what? Slain. And this lamb has seven horns, which is symbolic of omnipotence, all power, horns signified power, and seven eyes, which signifies omniscience, knowing everything, seeing everything. This is no ordinary lamb, folks. This is the risen Lord Jesus as our risen sacrifice. And it is at that throne he will be. And guess what has happened? God did become a man. And a man resurrected from the dead, is sitting on the throne. And he unites 
creation and the universe and one person, Jesus. And that's why we come to the table today. (laughs) That's why we celebrate this. We don't have to sacrifice our animals anymore. We don't have to build altars and let any blood flow because Jesus was our sacrifice. Through one death, one sacrifice, all have opportunity to live. Would you bow your heads?